Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecallendershow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. I mentioned two words before we went to the show, and it's worth knowing. It is, it is, there's one called abrosexual, and the other is a phobia called nomophobia. Nomophobia. Now, you, I don't know if you looked those terms up. A lot of you Google, everything's instant, right? Now, what you will learn if you ever lose your parents, and many of you have, unfortunately, and many of you still have them, is that you don't have a Google for your life. So if anything ever happens to them, the, the, the Google version of you is gone. That's, that's the majority of human existence. The, the memories, they're, they're all that's left of really about your life is you and your friends. But if you had parents and they know all the stories about you, and you don't realize how many of those go away until you lose your parents. But let's talk about this new term. Have you ever wondered what your life would be like without a smartphone? And by the way, if you want to get on the conversation, you take precedent. 704-570-1110. 704-570-1110. What your life would be without your smartphone. Now, anybody that was born probably after 94, 95, smartphone comes about uh, 2012, you know the impact that that device has had on it. it. You walk in a store, you see people, they're not talking to each other, looking at their phone. You go into any event, people are looking at their phone, they're taking pictures, they're not in the event, they're, taking, they're, they're recording the event that they'll probably never watch that film again or look at those pictures. We used to have picture and photo albums that we, that we showed each other. Now it's all on your phone. It's digitized. You've got 5,000,000,000 of them that you know take up space, and you've got to decide how much you want to store and how much you want to get away. What would it be like without that? Some can see a life of peace without distraction. I, I love it. When I go camping, I put that phone away. I don't, I don't want any tech. I want to read. I want to cook. And I want to be the heck away from everybody. But folks... Some have a very bad feeling. Many have a terrified, and they're absolutely terrified of the idea completely of going without it. Psychological research has uncovered a new fear. It's called nomophobia, where individuals become filled with dread, anxiety, panic at the thought of being without their smartphone. Now imagine that. A heretofore thing that nobody was ever afraid of in the entire existence of human human beings. Not like being afraid of heights or fear of falling or spiders or any of the normal stuff that throughout time we've been afraid of. No, phone. To measure the severity of this phobia and its impact on daily life, researchers have developed a test designed to assess and diagnose nomophobia. This tool not only sheds light on the prevalence of this modern anxiety, but also prompts a broader discussion about the dependence on tech for your mental well-being. And to think about that, if your well-being, your mental state is dependent upon your device, and I'm not talking about if you have diabetes or it's a, a you know a medicine delivery. I'm not talking about. That. I'm talking about that your well-being, mental state depends on your ability to be away from your phone for a given amount of time. That you actively fear. Just process that. Look at your kids, your grandkids, and think about that. Connecting the phrase "no mobile phone phobia." That's where you get "no mo phobia." 
no mobile phone phobia. Research defines nomophobia as the fear of being detached from smartphone connectivity. While it's not yet considered a legitimate mental disorder, like other phobias, like animal storms and heights, its conceptualization is founded on definitions from the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders. Yes. The research outlines the symptoms of nomophobia include many of those seen in other phobias, anxiety, shaking, sweating, agitation, breathing difficulties. So imagine you take your phone away from your 18-year-old, and these things happen. Take it away from a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old. These things can happen. It was also found that those with low self-esteem and extroversion, extroverts, may be more prone to the overuse of smartphones and therefore more likely to experience nomophobia. According to one study, which aimed to review global statistics on the prevalence of the phobia, approximately 21% of the adult population suffers from severe nomophobia, and another 71% of the population has moderate nomophobia. Now think about that. Next time you're out, looking around, think about that one in five of those folks walking around you have a severe case of it, in case it's not you, it's, it's one of them, and 71%. So seven out of 10, when you're walking around in public, seven out of 10 of the folks around you have a moderate form of this. That, to me, is a cultural significant problem, a, a problem of cultural significance. The researchers revealed that the college and university students seem to be most impacted, showing an alarming 25% prevalence, dealing talking about severe. So college students, which would tell you, remember how they used to they used to make fun of call a lot of college, college students snowflakes that they're not really prepared for the real world. They're really good at book studies, but they have no real world skills. I'm not saying all. There's a lot of people that do. But there's a reality to the snowflake mentality that erupts in these university settings. I'm not putting it down. It's just the reality of where we are. And if 25% of them can't live without a smartphone, and I'm, I'm talking about. I'm not talking about to communicate with people. The actual phone part, but I'm saying if you took their their Snapchat streams away, you took their, you know, their Twitter feeds away, they lose their ever loving minds. According to one study, which aimed to review global statistics, 21 percent of the adult population again suffers from severe version of it. 71 percent with moderate. Dealing with it can be incredibly challenging. Given the ubiquitous role smartphones play in modern life, the constant connectivity they provide has become integral to daily routines, making the thought of separation anxiety for most. This phobia not only induces immediate emotional distress, but can also contribute to long-term psychological effects. Sad. Sad, sad, sad. The need for tools and methods to identify nomophobia is becoming increasingly essential. The prevalence of the phobia suggests a broader social shift towards tech dependency, and what are we going to do about that? To use this self-report measure, individuals rate each of the statements on a scale of strongly disagree to strongly agree. So here's the test. Now, you can write it down, or you can go back to the podcast and listen. Or better yet, I'll put this out on social media so you can see this uh, on the Chad Adams Perspective on Twitter. So I will will get that out to the Chad Adams Perspective, and, and you can look at that. So here's the test. From strongly disagree to strongly agree, I would feel uncomfortable without constant access to information through my smartphone. Agree or disagree? Number two, I would be annoyed if I could not look information up on my smartphone when I wanted to do so. In other words, instant access to those questions and answers. Number three, being unable to get the news on my smartphone would make me nervous. Agree or disagree? 
Number four, I would be annoyed if I could not use my smartphone and or its capabilities when I wanted to do so. Number five, running out of battery in my smartphone would scare me. I know a lot of kids like that. They lose their minds. You, you could own them with a, with a cable if they don't have one. What are you going to give me? I'll give you your cable. What are you going to do? I'll clean your car. I'll do anything. I'll clean the house. I'll vacuum. I'll do everything. Number six, if I were to run out of credits or hit my monthly data limit, I would panic. Number seven, if I did not have a data signal or could not connect to Wi-Fi, then I would constantly check to see if I could. Number eight, if I could not use my smartphone, I would be afraid of getting stranded. Number nine, if I could not check my smartphone for a while, I would feel a desire to see so. They also had some other ones on there. I don't want to belabor those too much, but it the, the fact that it's become such an issue, the conclusion of this article says, and I'm skipping ahead, identifying and addressing nomophobia is crucial not only for our own mental health, but also for society at large. Consider taking a moment to reflect on those statements. Understanding the intricacies of your relationship with tech can empower you to make better decisions. In a world where constant connectivity has become the norm, taking time to evaluate the impact of this dependence can be critical to being mentally healthy. That's a thing, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it? It's just bizarre, isn't it, that we've reached that point, that tech has become so intertwined with and, and that doesn't, I haven't even started to discuss about AI and the impact that will have because it's coming. Just in the past year, the the massive, and I would say it's been, it, it, it's, it's a dramatic shift in the past 12 months how far AI has moved. It has been exponential, and it will continue to be so. So, by the way, you've now learned phrase number one is nomophobia. No more cell phones. No mophobia, no more phones. That's the fear. And the irony is, it's not that people miss that we call them. It's, it's. I always think it's funny. We call them cell phones. We don't call them, you know, computers or cell computers or whatever. We we call them phones. And yet, it's the least of the functions that people use on them. I mean, I, odds are the older you are, the younger you are, the less you are inclined to ever use it as an actual phone. You'll use it for text. It's, it's almost weird. It's like a it's like a mini telegraph, but it's a huge computer. Apps, video games. I mean, anything you can imagine. More power than it took to send a person to the moon is right there at your fingertips. Infinite information, almost not necessarily accurate information, but information. But I, I remember when you were a kid and see, you said, "God, who was a member of that band or what song they wrote?" And you had to. It took your time. You had arguments about it, and it might go on for days. Or you had to call a radio station to find out something. And now it's like Google. Who sang on that album in 1978? Ah, yeah, it was so-and-so. Didn't, you know, so that is no longer a thing. So one phrase you've learned, nomophobia. So now we got to give you another one. Uh, the UK journalist has explained it. And so you'll have to, it's called abrosexual. Abrosexual. And you haven't learned it yet, but it's going to be Emma Flint, a freelance journalist, wrote an op-ed for Metro's platform section. This is actually from Fox News, so I'm not just pulling it from some obscure publication. Section, a portion of the website dedicated to, quote, opinions, real-life stories, and analysis from experts in their field. In the piece, she explained how she came out as an abrosexual in 2020, only to be confronted by a close friend claiming that that doesn't sound real for most of us. A lot of the LGBTQIA plus doodah doodah sounds not so real, doesn't it? 
It is interesting when a person in the community tells another person in the community that, hey, that's not real. For those who don't know what abrosexuality is, in layperson's terms, <laughs> in layperson's terms, it simply means when someone's sexual identity fluctuates and changes. I thought that was what bisexual was, but I guess not. She knew that she did not know about the term until two years ago when she was 30. Oh my gosh, she was 30 before she heard this term. Flint lamented abrosexuality was still not more well-known, still isn't well-known. When I was growing up, I'd never heard the term. You were either straight, gay, or lesbian as far as the 90s was concerned. Anything else was made up. Of course, we know that's far from the truth. Actually, it is the truth. But the social blind spots mean we learn terms much slower than if they're readily accessible. Because once you make them up, then you have to have a coalition of people who agree with the term. And then they can be offended if you don't use the term. So we push it into popular culture and say, this is a real thing. You're cisgendered. No, I'm not. I'm just a straight male. No, you're not. You're cisgendered. You like women. Well, no, I, I am what I say I am, not what you say I am. No, you're not. You're what I say you are because I have a better leftist tilt than you do. And if I say you are what I say you are, you are, unless you can prove you are more like me than you are. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When I tell people I'm abrosexual, I'm often greeted by a blank expression, followed by a question of what the heck that means. And questions are fine as long as they're respectful. And I'm not expecting to everyone to know what it means. Hell, I didn't until until two years ago. Till, until two years ago. Dictionary.com reports that early versions of the term came from 2013 with an abrosexual flag. Because remember, you're real when you have a flag. If you don't have a flag, you're not real. Which means all you straight folks out there, myself included, we don't have a flag. We need a straight flag. I don't know what a straight flag would be, but we got to get one, don't we? And it can't be certain things because they're already taken. So I wonder what the straight pride flag would look like. You have to wonder... You have to wonder. If you're not wondering, then you're not keeping up with the times. Eventually, I hope that abrosexual will be seen as normal. What? Just another identity that someone might have and not regard it as way to be on trend. Flint wrote, acceptance can only come from education and stepping outside your comfort zone. There's a whole wealth of LGBTQ plus knowledge online. Why is that my responsibility? It's not my responsibility to go, you know, get over my nomophobia and go look for stuff that you created to make to make something up. Why is it so important that a new phrase that didn't exist be adopted as a nomenclature that's forced upon people and then people are ridiculed for not knowing that phrase? I remember three, four years ago when I was on the radio and we, we identified at that time 56 different versions of these phrases that Facebook had recognized. 56, there's no way in hell anyone knows what all those are. There's just no way. In June, there were also reports of the UK schools allowing students to experiment with neogenders and identifying as non-human animals in school. You can identify. Schools in, uh, schools in Britain have been allowed to identify as dinosaurs. Students have horses and moons amid warnings that teachers should address such incidents as a safeguarding issue. That's how wackadoo things are. You know, what's 2024 going to look like? I say that 2024 is going to be unlike any of the years prior. Of course, every year is kind of unlike the years prior, so that's not any kind of prognostication worthy of consideration. The point being, it's going to be a nutty political year. It's going to be a bat guano crazy year with respect to what people are going to say, what people, what 
pundits are going to assert and say and allege. I think 2024 is going to be a year for which conventional media doesn't recover. I think it'll be the year that several of them will go out of business. I think it's going to be a year that if they don't go out of business, they will become pure. They're on the edge of it now, so this isn't a, a strong assertion that they will become propagandist in a very direct way. And and unfortunately for us, if there isn't if there if there is not a corresponding rise in legitimate news media, and it's not it's not that hard. You can be a legitimate news service without taking sides. It's okay to report when Trump screws up. It's okay to report when Biden screws up. It's okay when policies to report on policies that do not work. And have or they do work. It's okay to report those. And if conservative ideas are actually the best ideas, it's okay to report that. But you wouldn't think that. Right now it's that you you almost it's like when two boxers face off and they have the boxers just talking trash to one another to drum up ticket sales. That's where we are. We're in the age of team politics. And there's no there's there's so much hyperbole and worship of of things that it, it's hard to have a salient discussion. And at a time when we truly need to be having more salient discussions. And I can, I can go through several of those. I'll go through one right now. Tell you what, we'll talk about AI. The, the exponential increase in AI abilities over the past year has been nothing short of astounding. We, we know this. We've seen different times in science and tech where it grows exponentially. We've seen this with home computing where, you know, you go from the Univac, you go to the home computer, you go to the cell phone, you go to now these amazing supercomputers that can do a billion, billion calculations in less than a second. We find two of them in the U.S. I think there's going to be one in Europe. These things, and that's just the infancy. This isn't where it ends up. This is the infancy. We're in the stone age of where AI is going to be in a very short period of time. So to think that it's well-developed, it's not, but it's coming. And, and the implications are almost unfathomable, you know, we, to think about the way it's going to be right now. You know, you, you've got a lot of it in your house. You've got a lot of it in your phone. You've got a lot of it on the computer, chat, GPT. It's interesting to ask questions, compose letters, do research. But where does it go? What if when AI starts entering into the doctor-patient communication world? So... You know, whatever advances they are, and again, this is from sensiblemed.com, whatever the great advances are ahead, the author says, I cannot foresee a time when people will be comfortable receiving counseling from a computer or receiving recommendations about diagnostics or treatments. So on the one end, I would say, yeah, kind of true. Because what they're saying is a doctor knows you, and they know the things you've got. They know all the little bits and pieces when they're making a diagnosis that an AI form of, of diagnostics would not pick up. I would all argue conversely that w there will come a time when the blood screening will reach for uh, Elizabeth Holmes. I can't remember her name entirely, but she had this uh, uh, fabricated machine that you put a drop of blood in it to diagnoses everything. But we're not far from that. We're not far from the ability to break down you at the genetic level and the things in your life that it can take a test. It can really break down issues that are going on with you that probably will know more about your own conditions than your doctor does, than your hospital, than you do, and will be and will be more accurate with respect to how it does that. So, Tom, uh, well, I actually, we've got Tom. Welcome to the show. How are you? 
Hey, Chad, Tom Tillis, just wishing you a happy new year. Senator, how the heck are you? It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, it has been. I, I just literally came back from the North Mecklenburg dump cleaning up after Christmas, and I was uh, listening to WBT when I, I'm in town and heard your voice. I just wanted to say hello. Well, it's a pleasure to hear from you. You know, we've uh, talked about issues forever and ever, and you've. Got, I talked about how you started out in Cornelius, you know, as a town councilman, then, you know, end up in the House, become Speaker of the House, and have had this this meteoric rise to the U.S. Senate. And now, you know, it's 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 that time of, of political time again for you. It's going to be, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I'm not talking about you personally in the election, but what do you think are going to be the issues that are going to be dominating the election cycle coming up? Well, I, you know, I think uh, the border, no doubt, I've been in discussion since we've been out of here. The Biden administration has lost their minds on border security. We see this historic caravan headed its way uh, towards the uh, to the southern border. I think border, it's amazing, Chad. I've never in the uh, going on 10 years that I've been in the Senate, uh, border has never, of course, in, in Republican circles, it's always been a priority, rightly so. But now it is the number one issue in some of the states that we're targeting to pick up Republican seats. And Biden's not doing anything about it, in spite of the fact that we're trying to negotiate, uh, get a Title 42-like authority in. So I think border's got to be very prominent in this year's election. I also think the handling of uh, supporting Israel and Ukraine are going to be key because we're either going to get it right or we're going to see a mistake along the lines of what we saw in Afghanistan a couple of years ago if we get it wrong. So those are, depending depending upon how things unfold over the next 10 or 12 months, uh, they could be... uh, It could be real problems for the administration or they could be problems for Republicans. Well, not to you know belabor the point on the Ukraine, but at what point do we know? You know, because I think all Americans want that victory there, but it seems like the victory isn't clearly defined as to what it would take to win in the Ukraine. And I, I think that you know we see that in, in poll numbers, and with you having to make decision about how much U.S. money to aid to send over there. Yeah, I you know I think as far as Ukraine is concerned. Um, I'm as worried about what failure in Ukraine does to our position, uh, you know, as the leader of the free world and the risk that we have in the, the Indo-Pacific uh, theater. That This is a lot bigger than Ukraine as far as the United States is concerned. China's watching. Uh, Russia, a Russia win in Ukraine is a big win for China and a big loss for our alliance. I mean, we have to keep in mind we, we've got 50 countries supporting the Ukrainian effort, all yep. of the NATO countries. If the United States doesn't come up with a smart way to lead there, then don't necessarily count on all those same nations to follow us the next time we may need them. And that need would most likely be in the, uh, the Indo-PACOM theater. It, yeah, it needs to be a clarity, though, with respect to how that win can be achieved and a feel, instead of a hilltop diplomacy, Vietnam-era 100%. way of looking at this. Yeah, completely so, agree with that. But, um, but make no mistake, if, uh, if Putin is perceived as winning there, it, it, it will create more challenges in Europe and, and even, as importantly, uh, challenges in areas where China's most interested. 
Well, Senator Chelsea, I appreciate you calling in. I didn't want to talk. I'm happy. I know. I I promise I'll end it on a... I want to hear your voice, and I thought I wish you happy birthday. Not happy birthday. But it's... I have to. I have one more question, then it's going to be all friendly, I promise. And this one's good. It is that, you know, the Senate, you've seen Menendez is under investigation. Even Fetterman's asking him to resign. It's a a paltry, you know, even... even, uh, I'm surprised Fetterman's starting to say things that are running counter to what's going on up there. You say, I mean, it looks like there's a real chance the Republicans take over in the Senate. How do you see that shaking out in the leadership uh, when it does happen? I uh, I, I absolutely think that uh, it's ours uh, to lose. We, we will win it if we stay focused. If uh, our our chances in West Virginia are very very strong, uh, all but one there with Governor Justice. If we move over to Montana, we have a very strong candidate there. His name is Tim Sheehy. I've actually had him in uh, North Carolina helping him out. Um, he's, he's looking strong against the long-term liberal uh, John Tester. Um, we've got a great candidate over in Nevada and Sam Brown. Um, we've got McCormick up in Pennsylvania. That state becomes challenging, uh, mainly because uh, we didn't do well there the last time Trump was the nominee. I suspect Trump will be. So, That'll be one to watch. Ohio, we've got to look at the primary. But at the end of the day, we need to net two. And all of our incumbents look pretty good. And if we win West Virginia and Montana, we're at 51, and we're in the personnel business again. And that, to me, the White House is very, very important. But no one, if, if anybody doubted how important the majority in the U.S. Senate is, look at what happened when we lost Georgia. Uh, Biden got in the personnel business. He's appointed dozens of liberal judges. Um, He has been able to appoint ultra-liberal people in his administration. And I want the White House dearly, but I don't want anybody to take their eye off the ball of a majority in the U.S. Senate, and that's what I'm working primarily on. And it's looking good, Chad. I think we're going to do I think we're going to do well. We'll be there, and hopefully our colleagues in the House will be able to pull it out. In many respects, they've got a greater challenge holding their majority than we have obtaining it. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply. At CarolinaReadiness.com, whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at CarolinaReadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out john i appreciate you holding through that also calling in john welcome to the show how the heck are you hey chet really enjoy you on air recently you're a true master of good conservative thought and common sense which tend to go hand in hand hey well thank you along the line what you were talking about the media propaganda I think we need to get a term out there all conservatives ought to use it and just hammer it constantly, the term agenda journalism. And just, it's agenda journalism. It's, it's more sinister than just fake news. So that's all, the only thing I want to do well, John, is somehow get well, that out there used 
every conservative well, ought to just pound that, use that term, and get it in the lexicon. Well, it is. I, I you're not wrong. I, I'm not. I'm going to agree with you that I never thought about calling it, you know, agenda journalism. I I don't tend to call it fake news. I mean, we know that term, and it's it's not that it's fake. It's that it's completely and utterly biased. I mean, some of it is. I mean, the Russia collusion stuff was all of that was that was absolutely fake news. They knew it. The the uh, the ignorance with respect to the Hunter laptop. I think media has egg on its face. The fact that the New York Post was banned from the Twitter platform prior to Musk owning it and that, that, that they were eventually blackballed when it was true. The entire story about the laptop was 100% true, and you found media excoriating the post. I mean, the New York Post for putting it out there. So there absolutely well, wasn't agenda. agenda. Well, it right. wasn't agenda. And that's why that's why it needs to be called that. That's why it needs to be just reinforced, and then it, it'll take a little bit of time, but people will slowly understand that. Yeah, well, hell yeah, this is agenda journalism. Agenda journalism. Yeah, and. It, um, and it needs to be called what it is, because you know, there's a whole well, lot of people that think news is objective. Yeah, they do, and it's sad. But, John, man, I appreciate, I appreciate you listening, I appreciate you holding, and I appreciate the call. Okay, man? Thank you. Right. Absolutely. Uh, again, this audience is amazing. Uh, the staff here at WBT, astounding. And and John's point is not without merit. You know, And in many ways, here's the, here's the line that is problematic is that so much of what we used to consider journalistic enterprises entered the realm of opinion where opinion, because now Fox news, what one thing, you know, regardless of what one believes about Fox news, they're pretty clear about where the opinions start and end. I mean, Hannity is clearly an opinion show Ingram opinion show, formerly Tucker opinion show, Lawrence Jones. These are opinion shows. You know, their opinion shows, they tell you their opinion shows, so the news is when you have Brett Baer there in the evening, I consider, I think Brett Baer does a, a pretty competent job of conveying news. And I think he even treats, I think a lot of people on the right get upset when he tries to report things straight down the line. But to his credit, I think he holds that line and he holds it well. I even think the five is, I think Dana Perino on the five does a, a pretty good job, even though she's a former White House spokesperson for the Bush administration. She does a very good job of maintaining her objectivity while being conservative as well. She clearly articulated Jesse Waters, absolutely a conservative host. And Greg Gutfeld, I think he's hilarious. I think Greg Gutfeld is one of the most underrated talents out there today. But uh, and, and then I think they have a, a perfunctory liberal on there a lot of times. I think Harold Ford does a very good job of articulating things from perspective. But to the caller's point, the vast bulk of what CNN presents is opinion, opinion. And it is agenda-driven. Uh, MSNBC, again, agenda-driven, and that agenda is hand-in-glove with the progressive left. Uh, the View, it's amazing to me that The View has reached a point where it, it has some say-so in society in a way. It gets It's newsworthy. To me, it keeps shedding viewers, and somehow it gets more news. CNN sheds viewers, and people still talk about it. I'm talking about it here on the show today. But with respect to agenda driven I, I like I mean agenda journalism because there and there's an abdication of journalistic integrity in many of these enterprises and that's the real sad truth you even find it it's subtle with a lot of the evening news they, they shove what happens into the world in the world into less than 30 minutes probably 22 minutes with commercials and 
they try to reserve commentary, but you find it. You also find the agenda journalism that our former caller spoke of when the stories they don't cover. You'll find that when things happen that don't fit their narrative, they just don't cover it. And then you can look at someone does, usually Fox will say, okay, here's how many minutes were dedicated to this given story, and you'll find they don't. How many, how many minutes did they cover on the, this ongoing Biden scandal? The news media has largely ignored it. They've done everything they can to ignore the implications of the Hunter Biden, the money transfers, where the money came from, but more importantly, what were they being paid to do? That's the part that just doesn't often get discussed. Doesn't get discussed. Um, I also appreciate Tom, Tom Tillis's call. I do think the Republicans have a unique opportunity to get a lead over there in the Senate right now. They, the, the Democrats have kind of a one-seat majority in a way. Uh, Manchin's not going to be a Democrat. He isn't a Democrat anymore. Kamala Harris is still there. Um, but she's, I mean, I'm sorry, she presides over the Senate, and, and Charles Schumer is the leader of the Senate. But that's very, with Fetterman not being on their side, it, it's becoming more and more testy every day. So we'll see how that all shakes out. Appreciate the call. As always, WBT, best audience, best staff, best station, 50 years plus. It's an honor and a privilege to be a part of it. Now, much more to go. Who's got Winterbull Show coming up next? I'll be back bright and early tomorrow here on Calendar Show. Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Calendar. Have a great day, folks.